This is the Cinematologist Podcast, episode 112. In this episode, Dario talks to the film director and editor John Lefkowitz about his non-fiction feature on the cinema of Walter Murch, entitled Sight and Sound. Neil and Dario discuss Murch's career with particular attention on how his thought and philosophy can aid in teaching. Also under discussion are the films Mank, Time, Sputnik and His House. And we also ruminate on the state of cinema in the context of the pandemic. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me as ever, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Good afternoon, Neil. It's uh, you know more than ever. It's it's good to have a chat because we haven't we haven't spoken for a while, have we? No, we've been deep in the mire of end of termness, and yeah, it's been a it's been a good couple of weeks since we touched base for the last episode. And uh, anything in general, really, life has just been kind of hectic. What about you? Yeah, exactly the same. It's it's funny because I've had a really really good productive week or so leading up to the this point of of tomorrow is my last day of kind of tutorials and stuff really um but yeah just getting an article a big article finished and we got some nice feedback on a funding project that we're putting together and various other other sort of little things have either finished or are being set up for continuation say in in January and it feeling good about it in in a way that I think has sort of placated some of the other difficulties. I mean, London going back into lockdown today, you know, and just that thought of another, at least another month, I think, of, of you know, stringent lockdown, I think, is on is on the cards. But, yeah, I'm kind of on an even keel about it, really, because of everything else. Well, that's good to hear, you know, particularly at the end of the year, you know, that kind of space for reflection. And if you can reflect as positively as is possible in these these times, I think that's that's good. That's good to hear. You yeah, say- I mean, always though caveating that with acknowledging the you know the the privilege and the ease with which I have it compared to to others. I mean, you know, you just you just look around and you know it's the, the combination of of the the effects of COVID, obviously, in uh, you know biological social sense, but then you know the the effect that this is having on businesses and lives in so many different ways. I mean, you just read the paper; it's it's like article after article in terms of it's having this effect it's having that effect it's having the other effect and it's just yeah it's it's grim if you uh, if you look at that one of the things that i've certainly felt has made it grimmer is that and we've talked about this before is as horrible as it's been it felt like an opportunity and like so much of what's happened in the last few years in the west shall we say opportunities have been squandered um and it just feels like there's a real death drive towards just making everybody as miserable as possible and maintaining some vague semblant idea of a free market philosophy which is going to save us all and i just find it i find it absolutely terrifying that there was so there was a chance this year you know there was a real chance to stop and go actually how do we do things how do we treat people and it's been wasted which is it's it's exhausting and i think that yes we are privileged in our positions very very much so but also this has been a year where you realize that everyone's had it difficult this you know the, the the sheer practical factors and the constant change and return to 
you know that, that's why it, for me it kind of ties a lot to, to hope because i think that when everyone went into lockdown the first time there was like okay we can we can work our way through this you know we've all stopped we're all doing it and obviously apart from the few people that didn't um but then we just we're back in and it doesn't seem like anybody who's got any kind of power or say has done anything <laughs> to to help you know other than yeah just kind of keep things ticking over which is just oh it's just it's just exhausting i think everyone's exhausted and yeah i think more than anything people wanted christmas as a chance to just sit and reflect and be with people i think some of the responses to this idea that people what people want from christmas is is ludicrous but i think people just wanted a chance to not think about it and have a little bit of normalcy and it's just that's not going to happen because of whatever so yeah anyway that's a pretty dark and uh sort of low enter to the i feel a bit like a uh, scrooge there so sorry everyone <laughs> yeah i mean what, what do you make it just sort of talking about some of the effects and bringing it back into a kind of film context you know what do, what do you make of the decision now to kind of slate releases direct to you know direct to streaming and almost sort of setting a marker to say you know the future now is distribution on a parallel sense where it's going to be it's going to be cinemas but it's also going to be streaming at the same time and which God, which company is it that that is that a warner brothers decision, it's, it's warner it? isn't yeah. it yeah god it's just completely went out of my head <laughs> but 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 interestingly i know obviously you're not on on twitter as much but like like the argument between what christopher nolan came out with what saying that this is the this is a sort of death knell to or a you know, an undermining of what cinema is and should be and, and the theatrical experience should always be the, the starting point or the ideal or the the thing that is organised around, that the industry is organised around. And, you know, then these arguments that certain fans on Twitter or film watchers on Twitter are saying, you know, this is great because I can get access to content straight away. And then I also thought about there's the pandemic aspect of this and you know at the end of the day if we're still going to be six or eight months away from normalcy in a sense you know that content has to go somewhere are we just going to wait until you know wait for for that period of time to to go past and I was thinking about you as well in terms of you know the the streaming is actually quite an important part of your cinema engagement practice because of the fact that you live in an area where you're not going to get the same amount of access as I do in London. Whew, lots to lots to dig into there. Yeah, I think that to tie it back to what we were sort of saying before is like there's the opportunity and I think that many organisations have used the pandemic as an opportunity to do something they've wanted to do for a long time. I've seen it in my institution as a university as a way, you know, it's that kind of like Friday night email <laughs> the 9-11 emails you know like we can use this as a way of doing something and they the the studios and the corporations have long wanted day and date they've long wanted control over and i think it, it it behooves them in terms of their their control of their product and their relinquishing of certain aspects of the profit margin to to bring it all in-house particularly i think you know you look at the rise of streaming services like hbo max and disney putting their own content there apple putting their own you know like it's they can go direct to audience and they don't they have to they just bypass it and they don't care about cinemas they don't care about the cinema experience those filmmakers do but as we've seen over the last 10 years or so a lot of those filmmakers who really really care about that experience have had to go to netflix anyway because the industry is not funding that you know there's only a few filmmakers who get the films funded at that level so i think what worries me is the it's the the final financial fallout of that on the whole ecosystem of cinemas and film distribution in the short to medium term. I, I, I've, that is a worry because 
as we've sort of said before, you know, having that stuff in cinemas helps get other stuff in cinemas as weird as that is, you know. So that is a way. But but longer term, I I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's just me, but I do I do think that there will always be a hunger for that space. What fills that space? I don't know. You know, I think that's that's a question that can only be answered by time, really, is I don't see festivals going anywhere. I think what you might see is more things like you see in Toronto with the, the light box and TIFF, you know, that the cinema, a cinema is attached to a festival, which has a series of programming, you know, like things like that. Relationships between sort of the BFI and regional cinemas, I think, you know, could go, could grow stronger in terms of the types. But whether there's a seismic shift in terms of the what we think of when we think of going to the movies, we might be at that stage, you know. It's hard to say because will will Disney go back into cinemas if they if they see if they see a return in what they you know if they see subscription and they see engagement on their platform for Mulan and whatever and Marvel you know why would they go back like what to to please a few people on Twitter essentially you know and I've always thought that give them the chance they will they'll do what's best for them and not and not 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 care about anything else yeah. My question is, is there a way in which a culture of cinema going rises back out of the ashes, let's say, that's just a terrible phrase, but is, is becomes sustainable without having to have the, the, the multiplex tentpole system in place? So like, say, for example, I can't remember the last time I went to a View or an Odeon on a Saturday night. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, God knows. That side of the industry that is that is being, you know, is the first one that's kind of fallen apart in terms of the pandemic is not something that I engage with. And the only, the reasons that I think it's it needs to be saved or we need to think about how that works in the future is because A, because it's it, it is, it's an industry, it's a jobs market, it's a job, you know, it, it's a place where people work. And secondary and, and connected to that is, do the tentpole movies allow the the kind of movies that I'm more interested in to exist? You know, this sense of, you know, it's not trickle down, but do you know what I mean? It's the, it, it, it's that sense of you have to have the big industrial blockbusters so that money is available for the smaller movies. And I just, I think that maybe there's part of that that's a sort of mythology that we're told because the movie industry is is just a multi-billion dollar corporate entity really and that's that's the driving force behind it and and what we get is kind of like the crumbs of that if that big entity then completely fell apart as you say would there still be a possibility of some other kind of infrastructure coming back up that maybe was less involved in volume and was more interested again in 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 things like locality and national cinema and regionality and cinemas popping up showing work from the local area and you know all of these kinds of idealized things that maybe seem a bit sort of wishy-washy and and archaic in in the neoliberal agenda and logics that we're all bashed over the head with but do you know what i mean it's kind of like if that occurred apart from the fact that you know a lot of people would lose jobs which is a terrible thing what does it mean for kind of cinema as a as a form is it is an interesting question i think that we I don't know whether we'll ever find out the answer to that because some other kind of streaming behemoth will will take over and we just won't go to the cinema as much or people won't go to the cinema as much. Yeah, I think that's a I think that there's a real chance of that that it it, it becomes something that people don't 
necessarily do or that they do wrapped up in a kind of event stuff you know like going to the panto once a year um for a sing-along of something or i imagine i sometimes think about it and i imagine it's kind of like jazz clubs and that's how i sort of see it is that they there will be spaces for film fans to go and watch particularly new stuff that's not necessarily you know that's you know festival fair or art house fair you know that's um you know supported by a kind of nationwide almost kind of film club release and maybe some retrospective stuff if some of the studios are willing to let it out but they're they're smaller they're bespoke they are you know it's almost sort of 1980s art center kind of spaces because that's the audience that is going to remain is but what's also interesting is you know what are people going to do when they go back like i think that cinema sits a lot you know i think the the idea of they're not being cinemas for what we might call a mainstream audience posits that there's other stuff to do and theatres in absolute disarray and live music's in absolute disarray so what is going to be entertainment that people are going to leave there and people are going to want to leave their house for entertainment you know that's going to come back in a big way more more so than probably before and people will probably want to go out once they feel safe you know you know because they've had that taken away for so long but if you can't go to the theatre because all the theatres are closed you can't go to live music well, what is there well a film is something you can put on <laughs> so i wonder i wonder what space and what what the push then will be for some of this stuff and I imagine, which is really depressing, is that I imagine what might fill cinemas the year after quote-unquote normal times resumed is all the stuff that people have missed. You know, it's like, let's go and... It's, we're, you know, like watching an old classic. Let's go and watch the Avengers film that Disney dropped and it's, it sits on a cinema for eight weeks. And all that stuff that's been made in a, as a response, as a small thing, is just shunted because it's like, well, we can make a lot of money by showing Bond, which everyone's already seen, but wants to see in a cinema. And that's like, again, something that wouldn't surprise me. But having listened to a lot of the festivals kind of online stuff and a lot of filmmakers and a lot of critics kind of in a lot of online festival spaces, actually, you know, I do have the, the sense that there's a lot of people out there who do want to keep making movies and do want to keep showing movies. And I think there'll always be a willingness to, to get that done. It's And it's always been hard. It's always been hard to show Bellatar movies. I mean, it's not going to get any easier. So maybe we can talk a little bit about just before we get into the sort of meat of today's episode, because I realised that was a maybe a tangent. I didn't expect us to kind of go on, but I I took us that way. So it was lovely. Um, But um, yeah, related to what we've just been talking about, you have actually watched Mank, (laughs) and I haven't. And the reason I didn't was because I was just already annoyed by the kind of polemic of. You know, this is a five-star movie by in, by certain critics, and then you look on social media, and it's like, you know, what is this terrible, terrible film? And I wanted to get outside of the, uh, I wanted to approach it with a kind of distance, I think. So I'm I'm going to wait until maybe in between Christmas and New Year and just do it then. But what what can I expect, Neil? The spoiler-free Fox take. The spoiler-free Fox <laughs> take is that David Fincher shouldn't make films for his dad. Is essentially the take. <laughs> you know, like. I didn't realise till quite just before watching it that it was his dad's script and it was a long cherished project that his dad had. And the other time that he's made a film for his dad was Benjamin Button, which I don't really like. <laughs> and yeah, and I didn't really like Mank. I just, I was, yeah, I was really disappointed with it. And what it came down to for me was that I thought that the character of Mankiewicz was really dull and shallow and poorly written shallow written you know I, I didn't find him an engaging character at all and i thought oldman was woefully miscast i just found him really really out, should not it just didn't work for me at all 
And someone said to him, why do you think he cast him? I said, I think probably because his dad wanted to cast him 25 years ago. So Gary Oldman 25 years ago would have been brilliant. Yeah, it, it just it didn't click for me in that central regard. And I just found it really quite plodding. And there's really fun stuff in it and there's interesting stuff in it. And I don't care about what it does to Kane's legacy. You know, I don't think you can really tarnish that legacy, certainly not with a film like this. I don't think that's the intention of the film. I just found it really not very engaging. Um, pretty dull, long sequences where, you know, just it really didn't, I was really disappointed with it, um, which was a shame because I love Fincher um, and I love old, I love stories of old Hollywood, you know, like when it's about the movie making and seeing all those old figures, particularly the writer's room, you know, there's a lot of fun to be had, but I'm not sure that the film knows what it wants to be and it feels like a script that was written and then sort of left. Yeah, and it's just, just disappointing. Yeah, so... I, I kind of have got gotten that from people that I do respect the opinion of. So yeah, it'll be uh, be interesting to see, you know, whether it, the the sort of style and the form of it makes up for some of these these issues that you uh, that you talk about. I imagine um, it'd be a good post turkey nap watch. Oh yeah, maybe. You know, so that I think you've got <laughs> you've picked the right time to watch it. Yeah, that might be a good that might be a good call because then cause a few people did say that they fell asleep during it because it. I mean, that's weird because like Fincher. I mean, yeah, but Benjamin Button, you've got to take as an exception. But usually it's not dull as a filmmaker. But anyway. No, and it looks beautiful, but it's not as it's not okay. as sharp as, as his work normally is. All right, so that's not going to be featuring on the end-of-year special, that's for sure. Um, I saw, and, I, and, you know, when we had a little chat, we were thinking, I was thinking about what, what we could have talked about. And I, I looked, I was looking on the BFI top 50 films of the year just to catch up. So what have I what haven't I seen what, what 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 do I need to see before our final episode of the year? And I saw that quite high up was um, this film Time, which was directed by Garrett Bradley, and it follows the 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 life really and the the sort of documentary recorded footage that um, Sybil Fox Richardson has taken of her own life, and she. Um, normally the story is about her fighting for the re- release of her husband after she herself had come out of prison and that they were both they were both basically arrested and, and jailed for committing a bank robbery on the back and it's quite so one thing one of the things I want, I want to talk about in the film in terms of the explanation of what actually happened is very vague or or, or de- deliberately kept low-key and in the background in terms of what what they actually did but they robbed a bank and the insinuation is it was on the back of a business that they were, that they had together was failing, or they, you know, they, they were looking like they they may have been homeless, and and she had many children, um, six children in the end, and the the, the husband Rob was serving a sixty year prison sentence, and it it's this story of her outlining the, the sort of struggles from a very subjective perspective, going backward and forward in time. At, as to when this had occurred and then what what she's doing now in terms of her role in the community. A film, I think, that, that sort of makes, really does make you look at the idea of what documentary is supposed to do ethically and and visually in, in, in many ways. And I found it riveting, but it made me ask a lot of questions about what it was what it was trying to do and what the filmmaker was trying to do and what the who this person at the centre of it was. Yeah, I love that movie um for similar reasons you know because i was constantly alert to it as i was watching it and found it incredibly moving but also fascinating in terms of just 
yeah that how it was put together and what 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 I was supposed to be feeling at any given point you know and I listened to actually this morning walking the dog I listened to an interview with Garrett Bradley talking about it and she says that she sees it as a film made up of two films there's her film there's the film that she shoots of Fox Rich you know in the last couple of years working towards another parole hearing and in the you know as an abolitionist for the you know incarceration uh, as it is in the states um but also the film that Fox Rich herself has shot for 20 years of this home video footage for essentially for her husband who's away to see the family and to see her and to see them kind of growing up and those two films together make another film and that's what I thought was interesting it wasn't just like the film is those two things it's almost like a and b equals d you know like it's something else and it really is a film which which makes you kind of constantly check your position on how you feel about the matter at hand you know and you're because of the way the time jumps, you're constantly reminded that this woman has been in prison for armed robbery, and that's what her husband's doing. And but you still are, you still engage with what the toll that that takes, and whether that's right. And you know, just the, you get to see her family, you know, these six kids, and it's like they just defy everything you perceive a single black mother at home with an incarcerated husband and her six kids are going to be like. Like, it's quite extraordinary, I think, that you the achievement of what what she's done as a mother and what they've done as a family, including him in, in, as a father inside, you know, and she, that's kind of a, a pain to be pointed out. And, and then it kind of jumps and then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it, it's it's another different time. And it's, yeah, a remarkable piece of work, I think, just a really, really bold, <laughs> like a piece of documentary filmmaking. Yeah, and that's that's available on Amazon Prime. So definitely highly, highly recommended as something that, you know, it's a story that's being told, I think, you know, Ava DuVernay's 13, but done in a very different way. And also, I think, yeah, the, the, the sort of ambivalence of the politics is, <laughs> I, th- I think, affects you on a on an audience level because you do, there's, there, are, there, there are these moments where it's, yeah, but you did do an armed robbery. But then the, the, there's there's those times where you thought, well, how can the the conception of this moment of you back then sort of losing your business and you losing your livelihood lead to the decision to go rob a bank to try and sort that out it's kind of like none of that is sort of engaged with so it leaves you with a lot of space to enter as a conceptually as a viewer of of what's going on here and i think that that's to that makes it interesting i think yeah 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 that's definitely the perspective that, that that the film's chosen to embody which i think is really interesting Anything else that you've seen before we crack on to the episode? Yeah, just very quickly because I realise we've we've done a lot before we even got to the main focus here. Um, yeah, I just I just really want to recommend a, a Russian uh, sci-fi horror called Sputnik, and this is a film that is absolutely makes no apologies for its gene- uh, generic grounding. It's very much owes a debt, I think, to Alien, but also kind of like there's an arrival element to it in terms of a sort of female scientist central character who's trying to communicate with this species that's come down but it's got all the trappings of a sort of creature feature and and there are elements of it that you think yeah ticks that box yeah ticks that that box but i really recommend it because for a on a kind of you know an evening when you want a bit of stone cold solid well put together entertainment it really really hits the mark it's got this cold war production design that is so engaging you know it's all sort of shot in this in these brutalist architecture of uh, of of sort of 60s 70s russia and the characters are really well drawn and the interrelationship between the aliens and the and the humans 
uh, is done really well and the sort of scientific exposition and there there is quite a bit of exposition but it kind of makes sense it's a lot better than some of the the american films that try to you know to try to explain what's going on in this kind of pseudoscience kind of this pseudoscience way but also it, it is shot in a very hollywood populist sense with you know a real kind of you know it reminded me really of a sort of nolan-esque visuals and sound but but with better better voice voice design in there <laughs> i would say but so yeah if you want a, you're like an hour and 45 minutes of just good solid horror sci-fi genre entertainment i, I definitely recommend it cool sounds great um going on the list i have a similar uh, shout out for a british horror movie called his house um directed by remy weeks which tells a story of two south sudanese migrants seeking asylum in the uk who are put in this um council house well i guess kind of yeah sort of yeah sort of halfway council house in them um, in what looks like lynn and lucy's estate um so it's that that kind of that kind of you know um uh and i think it's similarly kind of yeah sort of essex margate kind of area and the the tragedy happens on their crossing um of the the mediterranean they lose their daughter on the um on the crossing and in this house the 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 it's essentially that the they feel like the they're being chased by a demon that is um sort of out to you know make them reckon with with what's happened and it's it's absolutely terrifying and it's absolutely brilliant like i just absolutely loved it it's really smart on what it must be like to be you know an immigrant in the uk dealing with that system and matt smith plays a particularly yeah he's slimy but not in a kind of not in an over obvious way just a really he's just disinterested and like really these kind of empty platitudes whereas he just he just does not register them as people um throughout most of the film it's really eerie performance and he's their kind of caseworker and they're stuck in this house you know 74 pound a week and can't do anything can't go anywhere you know so the experience of being an immigrant is really kind of captured in the but then also it's it's just the the sheer emotional toll of what makes people leave their home to do that you know and then as it goes on and it's just really creepy and they're in this house which is literally the you know demons in the walls kind of thing really well done for obviously not not a lot of money um and then then things start to you start to learn things about them which really just completely shift the axis of the film and the last half an hour is like yeah it's just so dark like really really dark but yeah brilliantly handled 90 minutes again just and again on netflix netflix released it but it's a it's a, a british movie and yeah really striking yeah well well worth checking out and great sound design as well which i should reckon which which would lead us nicely into today's episode finally i see what you did there <laughs> So our main focus of interest for today's episode is an interview that I did with a film director, producer and editor, I think all of those elements are important here, uh, called John Lefkowitz. Um, and I saw his film being advertised on, on social media and it's just been released for free on Vimeo and we'll put the link to that up on the show notes so you can go and watch it. I really recommend that you do um, maybe before you you hear the interview that I have with him. And it's a film about the editor, the sound designer. I mean, it's difficult to put Walter Murch into one category, isn't it, Neil? And I think that that's kind of engaged with in terms of, you know, what is a craftsman? What is an artist in this film? 
in the sort of context of film production and what his relation his relationship is to directors is talked about but it's a very interesting piece that just uses Walter Murch's interviews and lectures that he's given as the voiceover and cuts that to you know a host of films that he's had some kind of input on yeah it's a nice companion i think to the making waves uh documentary which is very much about sound but obviously merch was a big figure in there and it kind of stretches out those those things and, and, and kind of focuses on on him as an individual and he is a fascinating individual i'm not sure i think it was paul davies was um the sound designer was talking about this idea of the sound designer recently when, when I had him do a masterclass and he was saying that essentially Merch is responsible for that, but not in the way that you think in the sense that because he wasn't it when I think when he was working on those early Coppola movies, he wasn't in any guild and they couldn't, he couldn't be listed as, you know, so they made up a title <laughs> apparently, um, which kind of fits really that, you know, that the idea of sound design sits with him because he is also among those other things a theorist, you know, and that's where I've always found him really interesting. Is, is as a as a as a filmmaker who is constantly thinking about what they do and the impact of what they do as in terms of the aesthetic impact, but also the the other impacts that come from the process of making and how different processes lead to dif- lead to different things. And yeah, he's always been someone I've been really interested in hearing talk about 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 film, um, and this this is a really great documentary to just sort of spend time with him and get a sense of how he perceives what he does um but then also how Lefkowitz as a filmmaker is interpreting that in his own way and kind of putting images to that to the audio which is the the interviews which I thought was really interesting yeah yeah for sure and 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 I think that that just what you're saying there about somebody who is technically adept but also has a philosophy of film and a philosophy of thought I think was really refreshing. And I think, you know, I'm definitely going to use this in teaching because I think it would be a good antidote to kind of like the the tech geekery that we encounter, you know, perhaps more than we would like. But um, yeah, so um, let's get into that now. So this is me talking with the director, John Lefkowitz, about his film on water merch, Sight and Sound. building a very complicated jigsaw puzzle and there is no picture on the box to tell you exactly what to do. Just put the film over a low heat and stir it with a wooden spoon and allow things to gently evaporate out of it. Maybe he's telling me the bug. Every film is unchanging, aimed at an audience of millions, and yet when it works, it seems to speak to each member of the audience in a uniquely flexible, powerful and personal way. It is a theater of thought and it is a collaborative art. Spook. Sound will make you see a film in a different way. In film, for the first time in history, characters can be seen to actively think. If you can tap into that thing that you were really interested in when you were 11 years old, it gives you as good a shot as you're ever going to get at being happy with what you do later. At its core, I'm still that 11-year-old kid. So I'm here with director and editor John Lefkowitz. John, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. 
obviously we're going to talk about your new film, uh, Sight and Sound, the cinema of Walter Murch. Congratulations on on getting that finished. I'm sure we'll get into the the specifics of the the technical job of work it must have been to uh, to put this uh, to put this film together. But just as a sort of opening gambit, really, what struck me about the film, and with regards to the way you've kind of set up the argument about Walter Murch and how much there is a sort of deliberate sense of what Walter Murch represents as a as an editor and, and an artist and a sound recordist and sound editor. It seems to me you're kind of pushing the argument that he understands the integration of sound and image as the raw materials of cinematic construction rather than just sound and image as a, as a kind of mirror or representation of reality. He's actually one of the, the key people in, in American cinema history that has a sense of cinema as, as a constructed art form. And I don't mean that as unrealistic or anything in, in that sense, but, you know, this, this idea of philosophy as, of craft is maybe something that's a little bit in decline and he, he represents the kind of zenith of that. So I wondered, I wondered if that was the case and what you found really or what you find about Walter Murch so inspiring and important to make this to make this film. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I really uh, admire him not only as a craftsman but as an artist, and not only as an artist but as a philosopher. Um, and his insights, his theories are just um, so unique and and original. And uh, I can't think of really many more people who've worked in in the film industry who are as uh, insightful as, as him. Um, and I mean, do you want me to go into to how the project began? That would be great. I mean, that was coming onto that of my, my next question. So, you know, the formation of the project is obviously uh, an interesting thing to discuss. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, um, I wanted to make some kind of tribute to him. Uh, I've always, you know, I, I, I'm kind of a mashup artist and have made lots of different shorter videos uh, on YouTube and Vimeo uh, that are various tributes to film and television history and to specific figures. And um, I kind of, you know, merch has always been one of my favorite artists, really. And uh, I was originally just planning on making a short uh, video tribute to him. But then I realized that if you're going to do it, uh, a, a tribute to merch, you really have to make something substantive and uh, something longer. And I found this incredible 18-hour interview that merch did, uh, part of this uh, program called Web of Stories, where they've okay. interviewed like scientists and uh, Nobel Prize winners. Um, Stan Lee was one of the people they interviewed, uh, you know, uh -huh. just all over the world. And uh, and they came to Merch, and and he's so articulate that uh, it, he was a great choice, and um, and had so many uh, great stories and great uh, theories that. And this and this was also just done a few years ago, so this is kind of at the kind of in the twilight of his career. I mean, he's still mm. obviously making films like Who 53 and um, still very much involved in, in cinema, but um, he he had so he had 50 years of experience to talk about and that's why it took 18 hours. So I was I was just like, this has got to be made into a documentary and, and and then I realized you know there are so many other sources that um, in which merch says things that aren't even covered in that long interview mm -hmm. so i had so i just decided to just take um as many sources as i could find 
DVD commentaries, lectures, um, Q&A sessions after film screenings, um, basically whatever I could find that was publicly available and kind of sift through all that, all those hours. I think it was about 40 or 50 hours total. Was that 18 hour stint though, like a series that he did in one venue or how did that, because that seems like it's the thing that is the backbone, but then obviously you've gone and got, got dialogue and interviews from, from elsewhere. Yeah, about 50% of the documentary is from the web of stories and it was just done in, in one room, but my guess is that, I mean, he's wearing the same thing in every um, uh, shot, every, every video. Uh, it's divided into hundreds of videos, uh, on, just divided by topic, but uh, my guess is that it was done over a few days. Because um, it would be pretty hard to <laughs> sustain an interview for 18 hours in one day. Yeah, of course. Obviously, we'll come on to the kind of structure with the essayistic video essay in a minute. But it's interesting how recently there's been quite a spate of particularly directorial documentaries. You know, if you um, if you think of the, the the ones that have come out recently, I mean, obviously there's the, the, the Hitchcock one and then Brian De Palma. Yeah, and there's been several several sort of documentaries that, that feature the work of ostensibly what you'd call canonical male filmmakers from the mid to the late 20th century. I mean, obviously, your your interest in merch is quite specific, but do you think there's a, a sense in which there's a realisation that the maybe the era of these guys and plus the fact that these guys are coming to the end of their careers and for want of a better word, maybe, you know, to the end of their lives, that they're going to be around for much longer, that there's a sense in which picking that resource of cinema is kind of important right now? Yes. No, that's that's very true. And uh, yeah, it's, it's no coincidence that uh, it's happening now. You're right. But yeah, I mean, uh, another interesting thing about that, I, I call it the American New Wave, uh, that new Hollywood period in the 70s, um, just where one great film followed another and somehow they were all produced by major studios, which, um, as De Palma says in Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow's De Palma film, uh, that will never happen again. And it, that makes me very sad. But uh, at the same time, it's, you know, it makes me all the more appreciative of that time. And, um, you know, merch is not a household name uh, like Scorsese or Coppola or De Palma. And uh, he is revered, you know, all over the world. I mean, people got very excited when I started um, publicizing this film on the Internet. And uh, I, I realized, wow, he really does have a lot of fans. Um, but outside of like hardcore cinephiles, he's he's not, you know, he, he's not as much of a household name. So, um, you know, this movie is kind of doing its service of, of saying he is just as important as any of those guys um as a as a, a key figure in the american new wave and beyond and and since then i mean in the, in the decades since then what's your, what's your background um as a filmmaker did you go to film school um obviously you've you've made stuff um and but this is a move into a kind of look looking at your sort of imd page and your your previous films this is a move into a you know a different kind of filmmaking i think yeah 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 so i um i mean i've 
been interested in film since I was 12. I wanted, uh, I've been making films since then. Um, I really got into um, feature filmmaking uh, in college. I went to Northwestern University, um, it, right outside of Chicago, uh, which is where I'm from. And um, I uh, majored in film and uh, began making fictional films, made a comedy, and then I made a, uh, a thriller. And then um, kind of found my voice as a mashup artist and veered more into nonfiction. And um, my third feature was really my first, probably my most successful uh, film. It was called Rubber Soul. And uh, it's about John Lennon. And uh, it merges two different interviews that uh, Lennon did over um, one in 1970, one in 1980, and cuts in, um, back and forth between the two. And um, it was a reenactment using actors, kind of like what uh, Merch just did, Merch and Tagi Amirani with uh, Coup 53. They used Rafe Fiennes uh, to play a, a real life figure, um, but uh, using actual transcripts. And um, so I'm very, you know, interested in history and um, using found footage and sources that uh, already exist, um, but trying to combine them in new ways, trying to trying to see how I can um, put a fresh spin or a fresh twist on them. So um, this kind of served as a, a kind of a logical choice for the for my fourth feature. Yeah, it's an interesting paradox, really, in a sense, because you're engaging with you know, what is much more of the contemporary way of filmmaking in terms of taking something that already exists and repurposing it for your own, for, for your own kind of creative um, endeavor. But Merch kind of harkens back a little bit to the, the classical sense of the auteur or the, the, you know, the cinematic authorial voice. And he talks a little bit about that in the film, um, in, in some of the uh, dialogues that you use. And he's very keen, isn't he, I think, to sort of make sure that, or, or suggest quite clearly that he is—he has a role. He's a craftsperson on a film that that somebody else has ultimate control over. But, however, in sort of talking about some of the things that he does, it is clear that his ingenuity, his artistry, has contributed to the way a film has 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 come out. I mean. That, that, what do you think about that kind of contradiction? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the key, one of the key moments uh, is when he says, am I an artist? And starts talking about how editors don't have ultimate control. And so if you define an artist by someone who has ultimate control, then technically he's not, uh, except for the, the one feature that he directed, Return to Oz. Um, which, as he says, was exactly the film that he wanted to make. And I, I think it's a beautiful, haunting film. But on the other hand, you know, Merch is such a humble person and such a nice person. And um, I've since kind of become pen pals with him. Um, yeah, and, and he's, uh, he's just, I, I really, um, I think it's more that he, he needs someone else to say that he's an artist. He, he feels too humbled in order to say, to say it. But I mean, you just look at his work on Apocalypse Now, I mean, that alone, his sound design. Um, and his coining of the phrase sound design, like it really shows how how much artistry, how much, you know, it's, it's not really just a matter of finding, you know, um, sound effects and putting them in the right places, but really creating a soundscape. And that is absolutely an art form. Yeah, no, that's absolutely the case. And, and to be honest with you, with the, the conversations that have been going on about Tenet recently, 
I think that that, that has kind of uh, come even more to the fore. I've just been recording with uh, with Neil a little bonus we we did on Tenet, and the, the main topic of conversation was the sound design and the the overloading of the sound design, so that the voice disappears. And it's what's really fascinating about watching something like Apocalypse Now is just how upfront the voice recording, the voice track is compared to contemporary cinema. I, I wondered just as a filmmaker yourself if that's something you'd noticed and it really sort of encapsulates the way that the cinematic orthodoxy of what sound and image, what its relationship is, should should be like or how that's changed, let's say, from the 70s to, to today. Yeah, well, I... Uh, I have not gotten a chance to see Tenet yet. So you're saying that the sound that the there's voiceover in it, but that it's barely no. audible or No, no, it's it's the, the the general dialogue of the characters is very difficult to hear. And it's under it's kind of mixed in a way that it's underneath the basically the score and the sound effects. And you know what Nolan has been saying in the press is that, you know, and what he's always said about his films is that it's an experiential thing and if, if there's a loud explosion, then you're not going to hear the voices. But I think, you know, if you go back to these more classical directors or filmmakers like, like Merch, who are involved in the sound design, I think that that, that understanding that the, the, the voice has to be sat almost kind of on top in, in a very real, real way is very, very much to the fore in 1970s filmmaking or, you know, in, in earlier forms of filmmaking than it is today. But I mean, it'll be interesting to see if you do go and see that, that movie, what you make of it in, in, in comparison. Yeah, no, I, I, I see everything that Nolan does. Um, and no, it, it kind of reminds me of Dunkirk, how, you know, I mean, I, can, I can't remember one line from that film. You know, it's more, it's much less about the dialogue and about the characters and it's more about, I mean, it's basically a feature length version of the Ride of the Valkyries uh, sequence in Apocalypse Now, you know, just this, this chaos, uh, chaotic battle recreated, but instead of whatever it is in Apocalypse Now, seven, eight, ten minutes, it's uh, two hours in Dunkirk. But um, yeah, so that's a really interesting choice. I, I can't comment on it until I've seen it, but uh, it certainly uh, would just be common sense to mix the, the VO, the voiceover, <laughs> louder than the sound effects and the music and everything. Uh, and, you know, voiceover is a big part in not only Apocalypse Now, but another seminal film of the 70s, Taxi Driver. Um, really great use of uh, narration there. And in Apocalypse Now, uh, I love, I really wanted to include in Sight and Sound how um, Merch was the one who said, uh, we have to have narration <laughs> because uh, without it, this movie is kind of kind of going to be a mess. I mean, it, it needs some kind of cohesion. And so, um, you know, they originally planned to have it. Then they took it out. Merch came on board and said, nope, put it back in. And, uh, you know, Martin Sheen's voice is very much a part of that film. Yeah, it's it's funny how voiceover, I think, has been sort of maligned a little bit in sort of, from critical perspective in terms of, the way that it's seen as a sort of shortcut to either narrative exposition or or interior psychology of the, the characters. And that can be the case. But I think, you know, with somebody like Merch, then the, you know, as you say in Apocalypse Now, the, the voiceover is absolutely key to a kind of, yeah, to the experiential sense of enjoying the movie as a, as a viewer. And then, you know, you look at something like uh, Blade Runner, where the the voiceover was taken out, you know, in the director's cut. So it's an it, it's a very interesting question, but it also leads on to that that 
the, the question of the relationship between sound and image in terms of the meaning of the film as a whole, which is obviously a key part to the, the early section of the, uh, of the documentary. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, you, you start with, <clears throat> you literally start with the beginning of life, you know, how uh, we hear before we see. Um, and that seemed like a, like a perfect way to begin the film. But then uh, talking, you know, talking about sound in the context of cinema, Merch has a great line where he says, sound will make you see a film in a different way. And just, um, you know, how the paradox of that, how, you know, it's, it is an oral sense, but uh, at, at the same time, it, uh, you know, I, I once heard that music can be the most visceral art form because it completely changes the, the emotion of the room that you're in, the atmosphere, whatever it is. Um, and so, I mean, we definitely, because the way our, our brains are wired, we are much more visual than we are um, oral. But at the same time, like we just we don't appreciate how much of a role sound plays in our lives, and certainly how it, how much it plays in film. And it's not just about altering the mood, although that's obviously a sort of key aspect. If you think of a, you know, a seminal film about sound, the conversation, for example, you know, which is you know, as close to, to, to a film that is really about the mechanics of sound and how it it kind of shapes our sense of reality uh, as there's been, really, I think. And it's so it's so fascinating because I, I absolutely love that music, the way that, that he talks about it, it underpinning the very narrative. And it, there's a, that lovely comparison to Touch of Evil. I mean, obviously, you're going to have the conversation in there. Is that Was that one of the kind of films that you thought that this is... A touchstone starting point of, of the documentary. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the conversation is my favorite um, of all the films that Merch has worked on. It's in my top five of all time. Um, and uh, I really agree about how he, the film is kind of a metaphor for, um, for the sound designer uh, or the filmmaker in a way. Um, and how making movies is such a voyeuristic uh, endeavor and watching them certainly is. And uh, then when you you know bring in the sound design, the soundscape, then it becomes uh, something much richer and, and more uh, more layered and complex. Without a shadow of a doubt. But I, li I like the way also that you, you, use, the, you use the sort of um, found footage and, and documentary form. Again, we can have a t talk about how, how you want to d describe the, this movie in a second, but in order to illustrate some of the points you're talking about. So say, for example, just using that that kind of humorous moment where the sound is taken out at the end of, or the music is taken out of the end of Star Wars. It's just a perfect moment in which you can kind of, it really does sort of encapsulate what, what Merch says himself is that idea that music is vital to the ability to interpret, but also kind of metabolize the emotion, which is a great turn of phrase i think yeah merch's views on, on music and film are uh really really fascinating and one uh thing that you know that i really wanted to include in the film was um his view of how music can kind of it's he never says cheating but it's definitely he he says it's like a drug or a steroid uh that's needed to inject um some energy into the into the film or, some, or inject some emotion and uh then he makes the very bold recommendation to young filmmakers to try not to use music. And like that is, especially now, just unheard of, you know. It, we're at this weird point where 
there aren't that many great film scores anymore, but at the same time, like most major studio films have are basically wall to wall music. Um, and that kind of saturation, I think is, un, is, is not good for the movie. I think, um, you know, if you use it more judiciously, then it'll make more of an impact. But at the same time, music uh, and film, the marriage of, of music and image is is my favorite part of the process. You know, it's it's such a treat to to be able to do. And um, yeah, and, and that Star Wars scene is a uh, it's actually it's almost like a, a mashup of a mashup because uh, it's it's this oral oral knots. These guys who uh, experiment with sound and, and post these YouTube videos and that one certainly went viral. Um, the throne room minus Williams and minus John Williams. And, and yeah, I just, uh, I put the music back in, took it out, but I, I kept all of their uh, hilarious sound effects. <laughs> in your process of creating the, the film, just on a sort of workflow kind of level, it, it, it's fascinating because, you know, I can imagine that, you, you know, you've got a list of all the films that you want to put in or clips from the films. Then you've got your list of all of the quotes that you want to use from merch how do you work in terms of marrying those up together? Do you do it before you get onto the editing timeline or do you just literally, I'm going to throw it all up there and then put it together like a jigsaw puzzle? How do you? How did you do it? Yeah, so the film really started and ended in post uh, because there was no real production. It was all just um, starting with, with bringing the, these sources into premiere. Uh, and my process was... Um, before anything, just to go through all of the interviews and to isolate um, sound bites that I wanted to use, and uh, then dividing those sound bites by category, organizing them on different sequences. You know, here's um, where he talks about music. Here's where he talks about the conversation. Here's where he talks about films that he worked on that weren't so great um, or that didn't succeed the way he, uh, the filmmakers, had hoped that that they would, and then. Um, I started to structure the film out and, and, you know, think what makes sense to go first, what makes sense to go second, and, and then bringing in merch films, films that he had some kind of role on. And very early on, I realized that um, this movie is going to be better if I can bring in a lot of uh, movies that he had nothing to do with, uh, just because uh, I want to show that... Uh, he deserves to be mentioned among these like these giants and among these like seminal works of film that some of which were made before he was even born but that were all that that illustrate his points in a very it, it just as, as well as any of the films that he worked on could do like 2001 for example or the shining all these movies I, I think are you know are beautiful and 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 really demonstrate what he's talking about uh, very well. So I I kind of just at, during the editing process, if he said something and I was thinking about you know it suddenly a movie would come into my head and that uh, related to what he was saying and, and then I would just drag it in and uh, and see how I could uh, how I could cut it in. Was there ever any feeling that you might have to? say for example use your own voiceover for things like transitions or 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 a voiceover that is extraneous to merch just to piece things together or did you pretty quickly realize there was you could create continuity in the image and in the in the voice in his voice yeah i i it, it wasn't a very hard decision to just decide that this is merch in his own words 
um, and that I've got so much merch uh, words to to work with that uh, I, I can just uh, I, I don't need anything else. The only other thing that I added, which was the recommendation of my wife, Talia, who is the, also kind of the producer of the film, she recommended um, actually putting chapter headings, you know, uh, titles to just divide. Originally, it was all one long string. And this is actually the same exact thing that happened with my with uh, Rubber Soul, how it was originally just one long string um, sequence of Lennon talking. And I realized, you know, you've got to let the audience breathe a little bit. And so having those chapter markers and, and understanding, OK, now we're going on to a new topic. You know, that's that's pretty, pretty important for um, audience digestion. What were your feelings in terms of the sense of, of distribution and what, what you wanted this film to, to, to be in the wider ecosystem of cinema? I mean, obviously, you know, you probably had, because it's found footage, there's copyright issues, there's all of that kind of stuff you have to deal with. I mean, I don't know. Is it more more a labour of love and I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it? Or were you, were you thinking, yes, I want to get the theatrical release and then COVID hits? I mean, what, what was that whole... <laughs> what was that whole thing like? Well, uh, it was very much done like in a black hole. No one really knew I was doing it. Um, you know, I was working on it just as a labor of love, uh, something that I could just really got so much, uh, found as such a rewarding experience and so personal. And, um, you know, just I originally, I didn't even know if it would be a feature or not, like I was saying. And, and um, I um, only after I showed it to Talia did it, you know, she say, okay, this is, it, it earns its length. So um, then the question became, what do I do with this movie? So uh, the first thing that came to mind was um, to send it to Merch um, because I wanted to get his blessing. I wanted to, you know, if, if he didn't like it, then there's no reason why anyone should have ever watched it. Um, so I found his agent and sent it to him. And um, the agent miraculously forwarded it to Walter and he was in the middle of coup 53 and um, it took him a few months but uh, he watched it he emailed me and uh, I still have the email that he sent me framed uh, in my office it's just uh, it was just one of the highlights of my life where he just complimented the film had a few suggestions I took all of his notes they were just minor things um, oh, that's nice he actually gave you some yeah <laughs> I, I mean Absolutely. I, I think, you know, if, if you if you watch a movie of your own life, of your own work, uh, then of course you're going to have some thoughts uh, and, and you're going to want it to be, you know, as as accurate as possible. So. So, yeah. So then uh, I tried to get it to enter. I, I, I entered it into some top tier film festivals, but um, for whatever reason, they were not interested. And there actually had been another feature about merch that was made about 13 years ago. And. I used some of the some sound bites from that from that film, um, and it was just one interview that he did uh, with, I think she was his assistant editor on the English Patient, uh, the woman who made it. Um, I think it was a husband and wife team actually. But I, I thought that you know while that movie had a lot of strengths, it um, it definitely didn't feel thorough or definitive, and there was even a lot of there's even been a lot of things that happened since that movie was made that I could include like him rejecting Catherine Bigelow on The Hurt Locker or working on Tomorrowland or um, certainly the Web of Stories interview. Um, so there was there were a lot of justifications for making, you know, this this new documentary. There's no rule that says that there can only be one film about um, 
about an artist. So once COVID hit, uh, I just made this decision that, you know what, this is the perfect time where people are in their homes. And um, if you're ever going to send, you know, an internet distributed uh, feature out to people, it's now because um, a lot of people have the time to watch it. And Randy Tom, who was uh, who is the director of sound at Skywalker Sound and a friend of Walter's, he found out about it and um, his and Walter's daughter uh, knew about it. And she's kind of very much like the gatekeeper as far as Walter's uh, work is concerned. She's helped out a lot with Coup 53 and she's she is uh, very protective of his legacy and, and she, she's wonderful. And, and so she tweeted it out. And so, you know, it just started gaining traction. And uh, while it's not, you know, like, I mean, this, there's another film making waves, uh, you know, the art of cinematic sound that that played at Cannes and that's had a lot more success than this film has. But at the same time, you know, I'm I'm very proud of it. And I'm, I'm really happy that, you know, it's gotten to over 10,000 views on Vimeo without much marketing, just word of mouth, basically basically, social media. Um, and, you know, we'll see. I mean, the, my my um, one of my dreams for the film is just for it to be used as an educational tool. And I certainly, I, I teach at uh, a local university here in Pittsburgh called uh, Point Park. And um, I've used clips from it and I teach at another place called Steeltown, uh, which is a nonprofit for high school students uh, teaching them filmmaking. And um, so I'm certainly using it, uh, but I've heard from people, you know, in different places in the country, at different places in the UK, and um, you know, I, people I, I can see on Vimeo as far as uh, India and Brazil, people are finding the film, so that's good. Well, we'll definitely be putting it up at um, our universities at Brighton and Falmouth, that's for sure, along along with the uh, with this interview. Were you tempted to? I mean, you know, it must be quite quite difficult, and you never know how to push the line on these things. But to, but to ask Walter to maybe have a give you an, an original interview that you could maybe have at some point yeah that actually wow i've never really thought about that until until now because i mean he with all these different uh, sources that i had he just kind of answered a lot of the questions that i would have asked anyway and, and so you know why not use what's already been made instead of uh you know um kind of asking him to regurgitate what he's already said a thousand times <laughs> yeah yeah i can I, I can imagine and and how do you like to kind of define what the form is is it you know is it a, just a documentary to you in your mind or is it a video essay or you know do you have other some other kind of conception that's much more sort of you know uh, contemporary ma mashup, you know, found footage type territory. I I look at it as a uh, as a nonfiction feature film. Um, I always preferred fiction and nonfiction instead of narrative and documentary because documentaries are all narratives; they're all stories, and um, and really the distinction is just whether or not um, it's. Uh, true or it's it's made up um and of course there are lots of things that are hybrids or blur the line but this certainly isn't one of those um so yeah a non-fiction feature but also yeah i certainly um was consciously trying to um pay homage to great video essayists like uh, Orson Welles, of course, with F for Fake, but also uh, Tom Anderson, uh, who made Los Angeles Plays Itself, um, 2003, just one of the all-time great documentaries, um, and certainly just uh, the definitive statement about Los Angeles. I mean, I lived there for 13 years, and and, um, and 
it uh, does a remarkable job of capturing that place. And uh, it's all in one voice, Tom's, Tom Anderson's um, written narration, but it's uh, an actor who's reading his, uh, his words. But um, just the use of clips and, you know, not, not really cutting away to talking head interviews. I only really did that once or twice in this movie. I really wanted it to be more um, illustrated by the clips um, from, uh, from films throughout film history. And uh, another great film just uh, more recently, um, about five years ago, Listen to Me, Marlon. Um, really, really like uh, expertly edited and um, a lot of art in that film, you know? So, um, and it's all in one voice too. It's all Marlon Brando's voice from different sources, diff different interviews and um, different periods in his life. So, uh, so yeah, so those are kind of two of the main, um, the key uh, inspirations. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the uh, time out, John. I really enjoyed uh, speaking about the, the movie and congratulations on it. I just wanted to, just as a sort of final thought, what do you think kind of looking back at somebody like Walter Murch's work and his, his not just his work, but his craftsmanship and his own self-reflexive understanding of his own work and cinema sort of more broadly what do you think that that kind of can give us going forward in in you know the much more immediate digital fractured sense of audio visual culture that we've got today maybe that's a big question it's a big question but uh no but a good one um i i certainly think that um there there will always be the, you know, Walter Murches don't grow on trees, but uh, at the same time, you know, it's possible that there will be someone um, 50 years from now, 10 years from now, 200 years from now, who kind of um, can is, is as eloquent as he is, who uh, can um, who can contribute a lot to an art form and, and help it grow and help it advance. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of different things going on here. One is with digital. Um, in, in the blink of an eye, Murch's, uh, seminal, uh, book, he, he has, he added a, um, afterward about, um, an updated afterward about how, um, nonlinear editing, computer editing can be, um, can both make the process much easier, but also kind of dilute the creative process because sure. you don't have that, that, um, time to, to think as much as you really have to more consciously uh, and deliberately put aside time to think because it's so easy to make a cut now. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. before it was more, much more physical and tactile and you had to, uh, and you know, you, you were literally working with physical films. So, um, so the cuts had to be much more uh, deliberate, but, um, but yeah, so uh, he, he talks about how, um, you have to uh, still find as many opportunities as you can to collaborate with people uh, because now, as Sight and Sound proves, it's easier than ever to um, make a movie by yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, movies are obviously all about collaboration. It's a cliche, but it's true. And, um, and they're always, always um, benefited uh, from um, from having multiple people work on them. Um, and so, 
so that's another thing where you know we have to make sure that we're we're bringing other people in and 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 trying to collaborate and um, and do that kind of thing and and then finally with um, COVID obviously we're not really going to cinemas anymore but um, but I my hope is that they certainly return and uh, mm-hmm. Merch um, himself wrote a piece in the Guardian um, a few months ago about how um, crucial the big screen is. And um, I, you know, as, as a father of two small children and um, as uh, someone who doesn't really get out much, I uh, am very grateful that I have indiscriminate access to uh, almost anything I want to watch uh, on my TV. At the same time, you know, I, I never want to lose sight of the importance of the big screen and, and how unique it is. And so, and I hope it's not only reserved for, for Marvel movies. I want it also to be, you know, for, um, for obscure film noirs from the forties that no one's uh, heard of, you know, and that, that people can rediscover a hundred years from now. So I, you know, I, I certainly echo Merch's uh, plea for uh, not losing sight of the importance of the big screen. Well, we certainly echo that sen- sentiment on the Cinematologist podcast. John, thanks so much for, for taking the time out. It's been great. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, so thanks to John for taking the time out and uh, discussing his film with us. I, I really enjoyed it in terms of being part of the these many documentaries that have come out recently that that have taken you know these directors or craftsmen from particularly let's be honest from the sort of new Hollywood age and and focused on their work in this sort of retrospective historical vein. But I like the way that this did this by by having the the interviews that he'd done over time and bringing them together from different periods and just concentrating on the thematics of it. I really enjoyed that. So what did you make of the film, Neil? Yeah, same really. Yeah, I liked the yeah, I like I liked the the film essay nature of it. I liked that it you know, Walsh was giving a, a lecture which was a film essay, but then also Lefkowitz's response was kind of creating a, another film essay which was about merch and about, you know, about merch's work and merch's philosophies, which I thought was really interesting. Um I I, I like I like hearing him talk about filmmaking. You know, what was really interesting about this was most of the time I'm because I use Merch a lot in teaching because I think as as you sort of mentioned before he's a great example of a of a of a practitioner theorist. You know, so when when students say oh I can't possibly think about what I'm doing I've just got to do it you're like well here's someone who thinks a lot about what they're doing and they're also amazing at what they do so <laughs> try and use that. But a lot of that stuff is about what about the work that they're doing. Whereas this was a great reminder that he's a, just an amazing cinephile like his kind of knowledge of cinema and how cinema's changed and what cinema is and all these great examples of films was was really wonderful which was a really nice kind of tonic and there was bits in there that I just thought were it was just nice to hear him talk about that you don't really hear people talk about you don't really hear people talk about Oscars in the way that he talks about you certainly don't hear people talk about being fired <laughs> the way he talks about it when he talks about being on Tomorrowland which I didn't realize and his ex- his experience of return to Oz that section felt like it was his response to you know what is a not seen as a very good movie but again it was a reminder that 
whatever you think of films, like often, as has been said before, it, it, it takes as much work and thought to make a bad movie a lot of the time as it does a good movie. And the difference between the two is, is not always that far. Sometimes it's a few missteps that you can't see at the time that just take something that you can't, you can't always see. And I think that it's important to remember that, particularly in an age where we just we assume that things are not made by people because of the way we talk about them. But that the way why people do things and what they're trying to do it might not always come across. But and it certainly doesn't mean that you you know that you think the film is good. But I think understanding where things come from and the if there's an intention behind it. I think it's important just to remember that actually this this stuff is not a science, you know, that it is kind of alchemy a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think that that really tied into that question of that he raises in terms of films that want to be great but never kind of manage it. And I think that the, the Cold Mountain example is really interesting. And I haven't seen that film in a long, long time, but I, I do remember it being kind of weighty and pretentious in a sort of, in a way that never kind of got off the ground. And And it's funny how he... He even, even himself can't, you know, he, he hasn't put his finger on it. You know what I mean? Just, oh, this happened, so therefore it went went wrong. But I think it's really interesting how he said all the ingredients are there for this to be this sort of grand sweep. And it just didn't happen. And, and the idea of sort of introducing characters and the work that has to be done by the audience in in having lots of different characters and, and, and the rhythm of movies, I think, is is really interesting. It got me thinking a little bit too video essays themselves and you know obviously they're very popular at the moment in terms of that they have been for a while but they seem to have had a moment in the last sort of three or four years in terms of being imported into film studies more directly and you know the BBC have been doing that series of of video essays or film you know audio visual essays whatever you want to call them to accompany the films that they're releasing on iPlayer and I think that this sits alongside you know like work by Charlie Line, for example, and and also the the LA the LA City video essay, which is just fantastic. Oh, and Tom Anderson's Los Angeles plays itself. That's the one. You've yeah, got, always got yeah. a better memory than I have. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think sometimes with a feature length video essay, though, my concern is that I'm just going to hear things that I've heard before. You know, if you if you work in film and you're a cinephile, it's like yeah, I kind of know all this, and and I don't need to know know it again. But I think that, that this this doesn't do that, and and I think it's definitely the the, the theory of merch that holds that holds that together, and, and and even just starting with sound and then moving on to image, I think was an interesting, particularly obviously from a, a podcast uh, perspective. Yeah, I think that the, again it, it kind of goes back to that thing that the, there's a thought behind it and an intent behind it to do something that is going to. It's going to not result in you going. Oh, I've just I know all this. You know why am I why am I getting it? You know and and trying to understand someone's process and someone's philosophy through hearing them talk about it, but also seeing that then directly aligned to their work and the history of film at the same time does have an impact. Which which makes you go actually I, I've I've not necessarily seen it in this way before. And also what we can discern from. The experience that's not being said you know so what does the positioning of you know merch as a filmmaker who was so vital to our experience of films in the 70s and to our whole kind of conception of the role that sound and editing plays in in cinemas or in that period and and, and since then how does someone who has that impact and has that how do they navigate the industry as it is now which is tomorrowland 
And what's, you know, in, in a corporation where I think it's Brad Bird, isn't it? Obviously wants Walter Murch involved because Walter Murch was, <laughs> is Walter Murch. And, you know, Apocalypse Now in the conversation. But Disney don't care about that. So, and it goes back to what we were saying at the start, you know, so, but also to, to understand and, and how we feel about that, you know, and how that makes us feel about film as an art form and as an industry when you see someone navigating it the way that, that Merch has and continues. And some of the stuff he's all saying about just kind of doing the work is, is was, was really, really interesting. And, and how we get to be reminded, because I think a lot, you know, so it's all saying about memory, but I think a lot of the time is always looking for ways into to teaching you know and and kind of research and 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 these things are really really vital for that you know because they give you those narratives which you can then carry into your teaching or things that you're doing you know and even things like there was the phrase i wrote down was sound makes you see the film better which just i just kind of thought about that for ages you know and then it made me think well actually yeah like this helps me helps me when i'm talking about sound and it helps me when i'm talking about how to justify what i'm saying in teaching and how to articulate that and remembering that there's all this kind of material out there which which does such a great job and then i can send students to vimeo for an hour and a bit to watch which i think is, is great it serves a really really good purpose in terms of being available and knowing that there might be one or two students that will really really get an understanding from this of how they want to approach what they do and here's someone who is articulating that and, and validating what they might feel about actually i want i want my film to sound like this and i don't really know why but because i'm 18 and you know and just giving them the 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 kind of the confidence to say actually there's a valid reason for doing this and here's my creative justification and it's the person who did apocalypse now yeah and and to be honest it's it really underpinned a lot of the the thoughts that i've had or developed over the last three or four years when i've been working with sound in, in a research capacity and particularly the idea that, you know, reading Sean and then listening to Merch, you, you know, that sense of how important sound is in cinema and the cinematic. And I've got a piece in the works that I'm going to write about the vast of night and aesthetics. And I'm never, ever going to write another piece on cinema that doesn't have the sound at the forefront of how I'm interpreting the movie. Because I, I just, I think if you're doing that and you're leaving the sound out, then it's invalidating to me now it, it it does seem so important it's invalidating what you could be saying if you're not understanding or at least acknowledging that the sound is is shaping the visual image in in, in profound ways um, and this film really points us towards that and and at the very end I, I love that what he said where he's talking about what makes me happy in doing the work the, asking the question of yourself, am I happy doing the work? And the, the the answer may not necessarily be, I'm ecstatically happy doing the work. But but the answer is, I would be extraordinarily unhappy if I wasn't doing the work. And I think that is so telling and something that I really kind of thought about, you know, and and will will take on board to remind myself sometimes when the uh, the times get tough, let's say, or, or when you're kind of questioning your motivation for doing certain things. Yeah, because we're we're led to believe that happiness is the the goal, which is just not a very it's not a very reasonable or rational goal. And you know what does that even mean? You know, so I think yeah, it's and again yeah, just how I'm interested in how people do it and how they conceive what they do. It. Yeah, I agree. That was a really a reminder that that's what most artists would say. Like it's a I can't see myself doing anything else. It's a compulsion. I need to do this. You know. On the weekly conversation where Beth says, you know, are you just going to leave your job? And it's like, well, because you're so miserable. Um, I'm like, well, 
I don't see myself doing anything else. Like, what else would I do? What else could I do? I, I do, and I still feel compelled to to get in that room, virtually or not, to to have to, you know, like I, I, I don't see, I don't see myself doing anything else. And I think, yeah, it is a reminder that that it's life is not always happy. But but if you can look back, hopefully, as much does and see that that contribution, and that there are more moments where it wasn't shit than was shit, you've done all right, you know. Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a, a, a good point to to end on there. So thanks once again to John for for taking the time out. We really appreciated. We hope you enjoyed that exploration of of merch and some of the other conversations we've we've been through on on what is our second to last episode of the year. And we only have our roundup of 2020 to come. Um, how are you feeling about that, Neil? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We've started sharing lists, haven't we? And both realised actually it's. There's a lot to talk about. I'm racing towards. I've got. I'm just looking at my notes now. I've got another five things I want to see before I sign off on the year. Um, that there's a lot year. I want to see. There's more than five because I, I think you've seen more than I have. But having said that, there's enough. Oh, there's plenty more than enough to talk about to say yeah. There's there's been interesting stuff this year, and I'm still in two minds about whether I'm gonna. Uh, maybe we'll talk about this off mic, but um, whether I'm gonna kind of leave behind the films that we've talked about a lot already, particularly the Berlin films, and maybe talk about films that I've liked that we haven't talked about yet. I'm, I'm leaning towards doing that at the end of the year episode. I'll be up for that. You know, I'm filing for a couple of places and I'm trying to talk about different things in different places so as not to repeat. And I've got a list of stuff for this episode. Um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be up for that. So uh, I, I don't know, that's, that's good because I think that there's a lot to, to talk about. Um, yeah, I'm excited for it. Fantastic. So we hope you look forward to to that. And uh, yeah, any any conversations or any messages you want to send us before we do our end of year roundup, please feel free to do so on the usual channels on uh, Twitter, Facebook and on email. So we will speak to you again very soon indeed. This has been the Cinematologist podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.